Hi and welcome to another episode of Games Industry uh, Lost Summits Community Podcast. Today we have Kostya and Jessica joining us from, I guess, London, both of you? Jess is not in London, I am. Okay, so, you know, for, uh, for, for me at least, UK is London and then outside of London. <laughs> uh, so oh let's, let's just maybe start <laughs> by, by, by quick introduction, who you guys are and uh, what path did you take to end up in the games industry and what's your current position, what do you do daily, what are you responsible for? So maybe we'll start with Jessica. Um, yeah, so I um, qualified about years ago now. Um, my first degree was actually um, in archaeology. And I thought I'd do that because it would be more fun than doing a law degree for three years. Um, but I did end up going to uh, College of Law in Guildford and I did my GDL and LPC as they were then there. And um, I then went on to Mills and Reeve and I did my training contract with them. And sadly, when I was in the middle of coming to the end of my training contract we were definitely coming out of of the recession and it wasn't really the opportunity to stay on in the in the sectors that i wanted to so um i ended up going back in-house because i had some experience of that um when i'd worked in publishing previously and i got my first post-qualified job at a marketing company i stayed with them for a couple of years and then i went and moved on to in-house at um, a big consultancy firm that was the first time i'd been in-house in a team with quite a lot of lawyers so they had 15 lawyers all over the world um and between us we covered all the offices from the us all the way to new zealand and then after that i ended up going into a company that uh, made industrial printers um, and i stayed with them for a couple of years and then i ended up at ninja and i've been with ninja for about two and a half years now so so coming from guildford uh does is, is the games industry a thing in guildford because we all remember at least outside of the uk this is probably the name that associates the most with uh, peter moulinet and uh all the other old school developers. Is this like a Silicon Valley that people in Guildford say we're the games capital of the UK or not really? Um, I don't know, because when I was in Guildford, I was literally just focused on doing all my law training and I wasn't and probably still wouldn't call myself a gamer. So I wasn't particularly aware, but I'm obviously now see all so-and-so companies based in Guildford and they do there, there are a lot but Ninja Theory is based in Cambridge and there are quite a lot of games companies in Cambridge as well so uh, yeah I don't know and, and being based in Cambridge is this an advantage for for example uh, your studio is hiring people and uh, uh, would people basically say oh it's a great place to move for family and it looks beautiful and there's this you know, little channels or rivers and we can row on the boat or something, or people would more prefer to go to London uh, or it doesn't matter? Um, I think that our HR team would probably say is it would be easier for us to recruit if we were in London, but actually Cambridge is a fantastic place to be. It's very easy to get to London. We have good amenities here that we do kind of work. Oh, we speak with other um, games companies here and we also speak with some of the tech companies here because Cambridge is a big centre for tech startups because they spin out of the university and, and the geniuses that come out of the university. So it is a, it's, it's good for business and I think it's a good place to live and work as well. That's the location for Cambridge Analytica, the company with the Facebook thing, right? 
focus on the positive, yeah. <laughs> um, but Frontier's here and Jagex are here, so, um, you know, there's, there's a big games community, you know, from big studios as well as, as the smaller ones like ours. Okay, okay, so you're talking about a few hundreds of people for sure, so that means that if someone basically... Probably that makes it safe for people to join and move in the sense that they may say, hey, if it doesn't work for me at this studio, I have four other studios where I can work without changing city, as opposed to uh, moving, I don't know, I was about to say Manchester, but uh, let's say moving to, uh, well, hard to find a city that doesn't have many studios these days, but I don't know, like moving to uh, Vladivostok or <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not even the means. Cool. So you're so yeah. So you're based in uh, in Cambridge, two and a half years at Ninja. And have you by now, like after two and a half years, have you uh, sort of settled in? Uh, are you seeing the results of your work, or it's still in the future? Because we were discussing that as an in-house person. You you work on something, and then if it breaks down, it breaks down five years later. Yes. Uh, so there's a reason for the retention bonus that sometimes is the case where people say, hey, if you're uh, in-house legal and you stick around, then uh, it means you've done a good job. Because if you wouldn't do a good job, either you get tired when the whole thing blows up or you run away from the problems. For example, some people say, hey, you know, come work for us and develop our IP strategy. Well, it doesn't happen overnight, so, you know, you need some time for it. But if you haven't developed it in a couple of years, then people get impatient. So do you feel the change? like you're settled in people trust you and uh, like what's your relationship in-house I definitely feel like I've settled in there I um, was actually the first in-house counsel so quite a lot of the work that I have done in the first two years sort of focused on getting a lot of procedures and documents in place now I've got to the point where there's a lot of work that comes my way there are a lot of things that I think that people can do for themselves. So I really want them to get to the point where they can help themselves on easier things that, that I used to do for them. So we're getting a new contract system in place and people will be able to do their own NDAs and it'll be much more automated. And um, if you just want to get a simple master um, framework agreement in place, you can do that without it being as time consuming or consuming of my time Okay, so you're, you're sort of in the same boat as a lot of other in-house people who at certain point come to automation and basically say, hey, this happens for the 21st time. So uh, let me uh, give you some uh, questions that you want to answer before you come to me and, and, and we do it 22nd time and 23rd time. So, oh, that's that's like super good. And uh, Kostya, going to you, you're based in London. You're with uh, Herbottle for how long? I am. Uh, oh, like six and a half something like that years but actually so jess and i weirdly know each other from what you would call high school effectively in cambridge so we were both there not quite at the same school but sort of the equivalent school down just sort of down the same street so in a roundabout way we've both ended up working <coughs> in the games industry but having taken very different routes so uh after cambridge i actually went to uni in warwick and i did Four years with a year abroad in France, uh, in Lille, which was lovely. That's when my uh, World of Warcraft guild made the most progress <laughs> by far. So we were probably n number three on our server at that stage because it coincided. I've already told the story to a bunch of people at the industry. But I'll tell it again. But it coincided with um, 
the strikes that they had that year in France. So our whole faculty of law was closed for uh, about three months. And so those were, yeah, that's when all of our raid progress was made. <laughs> but anyway, after that, uh, fourth year was back in Warwick and then same route as Jess, except I didn't do the GDL because I already had a law degree. So I did the LPC and straight into training. And I actually trained in Cambridge. So I went back there and it was uh, a smallish law firm um, called Hewitson's who did a little bit of everything. No particular emphasis on the stuff that I'm doing now, but um, what ended up catching my eye was uh, the intellectual property team, which was a tiny team of two very experienced partners, ex-City, uh, me, the, the trainee, and then subsequently the associate, and one paralegal, and that was it. But they had a really cool bunch of clients uh, between them, and so we were doing work for some of the, the, the biggest brands in the world because you know they knew them from 20 years ago. And so that was quite a, a, a unique experience. And I just kind of fell in love with IP at the time. And uh, I suppose that's what you would say is my background. So contentious IP, IP litigation. That sounds a bit similar to what Jan Peter at Valve has as his background, as he was working for a boutique firm in Hamburg, and then he transitioned to Valve. Mm. So that's, that's an interesting observation that a lot of people in the industry seem to have started in a sort of a smaller law firms where the intellectual property work uh, has the depth to get you interested, as opposed to a larger firm where it's a sort of a yeah. conveyor belt or, uh, let's say, senior people don't really share because they are doing their stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's true because, you know, as a trainee, I was going down to London to court uh, to the um, what is now called the IPEC, which is the, the court for smaller specialist IP cases. And it was just me and a partner and we were there, you know, with, with the judge doing a batch of 50, 60 default judgment applications because, uh, because of goods that were seized coming into the country at one of the ports or airports. So the rules were a bit different back then. You had to go to court and actually get a default judgment. But that's the sort of thing which I feel like in a bigger firm, you might not get the opportunity to do. And, and, and the sort of your focus right now and also about your current firm, like what, how, how would you define the firm? Is it global? Is it local? Do you guys have 20 offices in the UK or in Ireland? Yeah, so uh, Harbord and Lewis, so I joined here about, as I say, six and a half, seven years ago. And uh, so Harbon and Lewis has been around for about 60 years, so it's you know pretty well established. Uh, the way I would describe its reach is it's, it's one office in London, but pretty much every single piece of work I do and a lot of people in the firm do is international. So I'll give you an example. I, you know, I dealt with a, a patent litigation matter, uh, which just came to an end uh, late last year. And that involved you know proceedings in the US, potential proceedings in Singapore and uh, parallel proceedings in the UK. And so we were dealing with the UK whilst liaising lawyers in other countries to make sure we were all on the same page and following the same strategy. So, you know, equally when it comes to clearance work, no advertising campaign, no game launch, no product launch of any kind is ever limited to one country these days. So inevitably, where we end up is being specialists in English law, but with a good enough base knowledge to basically advise uh, on the basics throughout Europe and the other major territories. But of course, when we need something more beyond the basic input, we have 
a network of people in each country, a lot of whom were actually people who attend uh, the conference. Uh, a lot of them have actually become good friends over the years as well. It seems to be a thing that basically a strong local firm connects to uh, another strong local firm and this is how you get the best references because you if you talk like we had this example in Turkey where we asked a bunch of people who uh, in the games industry in the games company is who do you work in Turkey with and they give us some names and we went and we've met them yeah it was it was a pretty interesting selection of firms that would be quite <laughs> large or very small and none of them was really a specialist in the games business or could handle the the complicated matters and then we finally found someone who had ran into problems in turkey and they're like oh yeah 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 like we found a good firm and then we've met that firm and we we, we loved them i was like finally but that's yeah. so important it's it's what you were saying earlier you know the, the good people are really good the bad people are really bad it's just it's completely true and when you find a good person and i mean person not firm it actually matters person whichever firm they may be at that's something you have to latch on to and that's what we've been doing for have many years sort of building up this network of people who we know know their stuff specifically when it comes to games and specifically digital media uh but also how big are you guys i mean uh speaking about law firm people sometimes say we have this many partners or we have this many lawyers and then some support stuff so uh all across the firm yeah yeah so it's like 120 lawyers and just over 200 people total uh all in the london office i say smiling because obviously none of us have been to the office for quite <laughs> some time you now. have to like <laughs> check if it's still there you know real estate is expensive. yeah I, th- I think it is it's attached to the savoy <laughs> hotel so hopefully it's not going anywhere <laughs> okay so you're you're basically the same sort of company size overall as jessica i think uh, ninja theory is what about 200 now uh, uh, about with 110 Oh, okay. Okay, cool. So, so okay, right. So you're based in London, Central, coordinating things around. And what is the specialty? Like, what do you guys do? Why people come to Herb Barrel? Yeah, so the, the background, so 60 years ago, the, the very first clients of the firm were the, the high, you know, Humphrey Bogart and you know, the very high profile talent uh, type of clients. And that's where really the roots were. So they were in, in entertainment and it was theater, West End plays, film, television, and then it kind of grew from there. And now I would say the specialisms are technology, media and entertainment. That's like the core, but it is a a full practice firm. So, you know, we have a a family team that deals with family stuff. We have an employment team that goes to court and employment matters with the tax team and, you know, all the commercial litigators, the IP litigators, trademark filing practice, the the whole shebang. But in terms of the sector focus, uh, I would say there is a strong emphasis on, you know, the creative sectors. So, uh, and that's why games is, is such so a big part. Speaking about the games and the studios and the clients, uh, every year we have this discussion where uh, we say that the studios that need the lawyer uh, don't use the lawyer. Uh, and the studios that don't need legal help, they use legal help because typically you have to run into problems and get hit hard uh, before you realize, hey, you know, maybe I should have an in-house lawyer. There are so many teams that are 100 people, 150 people, uh, studios, and they mm-hmm. just don't have an in-house lawyer. And then if you talk to them, they say, oh, we work with this guy at a big firm. And then the guy changes and then there's a new guy and then there's a new guy. So there's very little kind of synergy between them. So I know you write articles about the games industry uh, 
the legal side of the industry and you try to sort of reach out hmm. to the developers did it pay off uh do you feel that you're doing something meaningful or you're just talking to people and they just say yeah sure and then they go eat with their hands without forks and knives eat with their hands i haven't heard that one before I, but i think so you're asking basically is stuff that we write stuff that i write is that effect why do i do it and, and right? more curious about the mod like let's say you're 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 a kind-hearted person and you want to go out and help new studios and yeah. non-legal people to understand the legal aspects and how that can uh help them so you go and do it and you do it once yeah. twice three times uh is there any effect because if there's no effect then uh it's, it's like you know you go to a developer conference and you say guys you need to have a lawyer yeah. if you have a contract especially in, in you know china yeah. or japan and they all nod and say yeah 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 and then no one does it has have you had a good experience of talking to a developer and seeing the developer evolve before getting hit with a brick before getting hit with a brick yeah i mean to be honest it's a real mix so th there is definitely a lot of you know we're gonna avoid if we can incurring the expense of talking to a lawyer and you know, it applies to other professionals too unless absolutely necessary and the absolutely necessary comes in when something's gone wrong but i have been pleasantly surprised on a few occasions so i've just started working with uh, these two guys in Spain at the moment and it, it's almost ungodly timing because they randomly decided oh you know we need to get our, our house in order you know we're starting to get a, a bit bigger now we, you know we've got a, a good following good good financials let's let's talk to a lawyer about actually getting some proper contracts in place that we didn't just copy pasta from Google um, and literally Two, three days after I've, you know, we had the initial conversation, started working together, they ran into this big problem. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, some takedowns that were submitted, which really risked crippling their business completely. And it, it was just complete fluke timing that they already had a lawyer there who could deal with IP issues, who, you know, could help them on short notice. So I was just saying to them, you know, in terms of picking a time <laughs> when to first start a relationship with a lawyer your timing really couldn't have been any better so you know it's that's a it would be good to have more success stories like that but yeah it doesn't always happen and, like and that. jessica a question for you like for your studio and for your studio's management uh, i mean i'm not i'm not we don't know what they think we we don't know what other people think but generally what do you think is the expectation at, at the studio uh from the legal team do you Uh, see you as an insurance in the case that like you're there to prevent bad stuff from happening or they see you as someone who can sort of organize things and uh, have a clean house and then if they would like to take uh you know additional investment or change something or merch or whatever do whatever then uh they already have everything sorted they know where to look for it or or you're like sort of a response to the regulatory pressures so uh european union changes the laws and they know that you're the person who understands what has changed and what they have to do like what are you a combination of everything you're like a general doctor who uh you know listens to them and says okay now we have to go to this patent firm oh yeah now we have to go to this trademark firm like how do you think they they look at you them being developers and engineers and creative people and you being the kind of implanted legal uh, talent inside um i when i try to explain to people what i do i say that i'm very much like gp so when you go to your 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 family doctor they know a lot of things about a lot of subjects 
Um, but if you have a major problem, they'll refer you to a specialist. And that's definitely the kind of way that my role works. I think the business sees is my role as a, a risk management one. So ultimately, I don't take the final decisions on things. I don't sign documents off. So that is for senior management, but I will advise on risk and I will get contracts into a position where risk is mitigated or we're in a good position for it. And on the other side, organisation and order function. So I am the only lawyer at Ninja Theory and everything theoretically does come through me. Um, so every document has to get stored and recorded and we have to be able to find it again. And so I have that function as well. So it's, it is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think also people expect you to know the answer to everything. As a, as a lawyer, you have a responsibility uh, to the regulator and to the general public. You don't advise on things that you don't know about. And I think it's difficult for a business that has invested money in hiring person that has a qualification to understand that there are some things that I can't advise on. So my costume was saying he knows things about of European law but if it becomes thorny then he goes to a specialist and that's absolutely what I have to do as well you know the moment we've got sort of construction and, and property issues and yes I know some things at a high level about those subjects but absolutely those contracts and the, the difficult issues with them go out to specialists I think it's sometimes difficult for the business to understand that you have to be very strong about how you deal with that and say is my responsibility as a regulated person and actually to the business to make sure that they're getting good advice you know we actually spend the money on getting proper advice on this and do you do you rely on some sort of a personal network of other in-house lawyers or law firm lawyers that are in the similar position where you could call someone and say hey because you're not a publisher you're a studio in the sense that you know, probably a publisher would be more reluctant to help another publisher, especially if you read the news like, oh, CD Projekt tops the valuation of Ubisoft. And then, hello, Ubisoft, I'm Rafael at CD Projekt. Could you... <laughs> Just wanted to run this by you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, so in that sense, like as a studio, probably it's more open. Like, do you find this helpful? Are, are other in-house people helpful and they uh, solve, you know, the same issues? Or it's more helpful for you to hang out with law firms as they accumulate more experience, as they're more exposed to risks? Um, I do find that law firms are more helpful because they see a wider variety of problems. Having said that, I've been very lucky because although when I joined Ninja Theory, um, it was just me on my own, eight months, nine months after I joined, we were acquired by Microsoft. And now I have the ability to work with Microsoft lawyers that support Xbox Game Studios and they're great because they have a lot of people, they have a lot of lawyers at Microsoft who are specialists <laughs> in all kinds of things, like amazing things that I didn't really think about. You have trademark and IP issues but they also have specialists in writing terms and conditions for promotions. Uh, if you have marketing and, and product management and things like that um, and those people are a great resource. So you can basically go in-house and say, hey, can you uh, give me an email of the guy who works on uh, LinkedIn that got banned in Russia? Because I got this thing coming in Russia. And then there's a guy like, hey, I'm two years in court now in Russia. I can give you contacts and everything. Do you, I don't know, do you work with uh, 
some other studios that are owned, like belong to the Microsoft family? Is there a horizontal thing where you can uh, talk to someone in a different country, at a different studio and, and just ask for advice? Uh, the other Microsoft studios, all the ones that sort of got acquired around the same time as us, don't have their own in-house legal. And they're now all supported by um, the Xbox Game Studios lawyers in um, Seattle, Microsoft. So it's very much those people that I work with. And if I have a question, I say, oh, has anyone got experience of this? Um, there's usually someone that has an answer for it, or they'll know somebody that will have an answer for it. And they're great because, of course, a lot of those people are quite experienced in video games themselves. And I am not particularly experienced in video games. So having that extra dimension of help is very useful to me. So that's cool. I mean, that sounds like... Well, I mean, a little bit decentralized uh, than Tencent, that has the whole floor of uh, lawyers. I think what, it was like almost an in-house law firm with 300 lawyers the last time we checked, uh, where basically you can solve any issue without leaving the floor. And then they still work with outside law firms on specific deals in specific regions and so on. So so basically, you're, you've got your family a sort of source of experience and then you go to law firms and then law firms uh, can provide you with the uh, more specific advice and question for you are you finding the uh, uh, law firm scene in london or in the uk friendly can you go and you know talk shop with other law firm lawyers because i heard from some people in the uk that oh you know like this guy is really a dick because he doesn't really share he doesn't care and he doesn't really like want to you know sort of <laughs> laser focused on 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 promoting his own business or her own business and not really uh thinking about the community so how open is the uk legal community at law firms uh i'd say it's reasonably open but the truth is if you have a uk issue uh I can't think of many situations where we just, we just wouldn't have the people in, in our firm who would know the answer for a UK issue. So where that happens more often is where I have a quick question about something, you know, in France, Germany, Thailand, Singapore, US, whatever. And it's not something that necessarily merits like opening a whole file and sending a client, billing and everything. It's literally just a half an hour thing. There, it's really useful to have a network of people who you just know really well and you've met several times and you, uh, who you can just pick up the phone to and say, look, I've got this small thing, you know, what can you just give me your take on it? And obviously you, you reciprocate and, and I do that a lot. I mean, I've been doing that this week uh, for something in France and in Germany. So uh, that's extremely helpful. That sounds like a good setup because at some of the international law firms, my experience has been that you get uh, a question from a different office. They expect you to work on this. You cannot bill them. And it's not going to show up at the end of the year for you. So you're like sort of a providing free time uh, that your own office will not even recognize to help someone somewhere. And you don't really like getting yeah. kind of feel that you need to help, but you don't really get the credit for this. And, and the, the other thing is like, and I would say this because not a massive multi-office firm but there, there is pros and cons to both so i would say a pro of, of where we are is that you can really pick and choose who you work with so if you're if you're in a multi-office firm and you're in the london office and you have a question in germany you pretty much have to go to the german office and the german office might be the person there who you need to speak to might be great or they might not be great or they might not not know anything about games 
they might be great at their specialism but have no commercial context whereas you know i, I will have a, a mental list of you know five six ten lawyers in a particular country that i know i can go to and i can cherry pick exactly the one who who fits the bill and they will know that their reputation uh, relies on how they will perform for your preferred client and then whether or not exactly and and likewise yeah so there's an incentive to to work to you know to do so jessica favors. feels more like a gp and that she knows a bit of everything and she's sort of doing the orientation for the studio and the studio comes and says hey we want to try i don't know free to play thing in korea Uh, what are the limitations? And then she's like, okay, we're gonna go here and this is the information, so let me explain this to you. Do you do you feel like sometimes like a surgeon who uh, fixes the broken fingers of a patient for six months and then you work very meticulously on, on, on putting everything together and then the guy goes out to celebrate and breaks the arm again the next day and you're like, oh well. <laughs> like, do you do you are you concerned with this? That sometimes you advise people and then they run into trouble and then they keep running into trouble because they are not really listening to you as a general advisory, but they're just asking you to help them solve this current mess. Yeah, sometimes. Although I have to say, usually when they run into trouble once, you know, after that they they tend to learn their lesson, as it were. Um, otherwise, you know, they just they just don't survive for very long I, i don't have many examples of you know where we, we advised on something and the same mistake was repeated over and over again but yeah it, you know smaller firm so at a large firm uh, i i came across this problem where people who work in the games team they have to be knowledgeable about the games industry but they have to also build their time and they cannot say hey i just spent four hours chatting to uh, game developers Uh, so they have to like this. There's this strange situation where you're supposed to know everything about the games industry, but you cannot build a single hour of research. So how do you read up all the news? Uh, you know, going on the subway home or on your weekends. It feels like the the firm is taxing you with extra research that you have to do on your own time that you're not paid for and so on. Is it is it the problem at smaller firms yeah. or, or not really? I think this is highly law firm dependent. I think I'm really fortunate in that there's a there's quite a wide leeway given to lawyers. Even you know I'm relatively senior now, but even at a junior level, there's quite a lot of leeway given to people who want to get properly entrenched in an industry. And if if you find a, a law firm like that, I think that's a really good place to be. Where yes, I mean all law firms. Let's be clear about this: they're business. Right, they have to bill money at the end of the day. Otherwise, what's the point? They just won't survive. But there's there's got to be a balance, right? And you know, if there is value, even even to the business, there's significant value in getting to know your clients, getting to know the industry that they're in. And so, although you can't bill for that, I think I would like to think most firms recognize the value in that. So I, I've never really run into an issue of you know being torn in two directions. And plus. If you're trying to get into an industry, it's probably because you have an interest in it already anyway. So it kind of doesn't feel like work, if that makes sense. Like going to Vilnius doesn't feel like work. It's work in a sense, but I'm there for business reasons, but it's it's also pleasure to a large extent, especially when I get to talk about purple <laughs> tentacles in front of 300 people. So that's, yeah. So, so what you're saying rings true to the general statement that 
it's pretty hard to be a games industry professional in the legal field unless you have some appreciation and some love for the video games. As otherwise, you face the need of processing a lot of information and putting it in the context. And then you meet a client and the client says, our games are the best. And you don't really know. Maybe they're just copying. But I mean, to take Jess as an example, I mean, she's done it. I mean, Jess, you said yourself, you, you weren't a gamer to start with, but you're there. You're like as entrenched as you can possibly be. So I wouldn't, to anybody listening to this, thinking about career in private practice or in-house in the games industry, I wouldn't say that not you know, having a super high ranking in a particular game is is something that will stop no, I totally you. agree with that. I was very lucky that when I joined Ninja, I went into that interview and I said, look, I'll be straight with you, I haven't played a game since. I played Tetris on the Game Boy and Mario 64 on the N64. But, you know, this looks fun and I'm willing to learn and I'm a quick learner. And people were great about explaining literally all the naughty things that people that know about games would think is ridiculous. But, you know, I didn't know any of those things. I didn't know anything about the industry or how people make games. And people were very patient with me and most of them didn't laugh too hard either. So, you know, you need that kind of support so that you can build up that knowledge and help people. Definitely, it's, it's all learnable. I'm still learning though. You're, you're, you're like a good example of uh... Uh, the, the, the general approach would be, hey, at the summit, we, we, we go out for you, you know, have some beers. And uh, people, everyone is hiring. Everyone is like, do you know, by the way, do you know any uh, uh, you know, UK-based uh, lawyer, in-house counsel? Because we were looking for two people. And do you know anyone in Germany? And everyone is looking and no one can find anyone. And then when you ask them what are they looking for, uh, most companies will say, well, we need someone who has games industry experience and is a lawyer. And, and you're like, well, there's literally, I don't know, 300 people like this in Europe and that's it. And, and, and why don't you look at someone else? Oh, we have to do all the onboarding and, you know, what if that person doesn't like games and blah, blah, blah. So it seems like your studio was very inclusive and uh, did a good job of onboarding you and uh, took your legal talent and gave you games industry context. And then you're able to integrate fully without coming to them and saying, oh, you know, I, I play World of Warcraft. Here's my profile. <laughs> Take a look at the hours. Um, <laughs> yeah, there is, there is. Uh, a couple of game studios uh, that's I think you guys know that uh, will ask you for your account and their video game and uh, check the uh, total playtime. That would be my dream. I've dreamt of putting my gaming achievements on my CV, but it's, I've never actually got around to doing it. Um, but actually, you know, there's a lot of GCs who are not gamers. Like, I, I see this all the time and it, it shouldn't surprise me. It sometimes does, but there's, there's a lot of senior people in senior legal roles who are just have no interest in that kind of stuff. It's, 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 it's a philosophical question. I, I know that uh, the guys at Wargaming, for example, they don't care what you play, but they do care that you should appreciate the medium. So whether or not you're playing casual games <laughs> or, or handheld or you can play on Switch, doesn't matter as long as you understand the basic concept of why people enjoy video games. So when you talk to the development team, you... You speak the same language, uh, and they had some some not so great experience with people who were thinking that video games are sort of the inferior medium for for culture. Uh, mm. And I and I know these the old arguments. Uh, I think you may remember, or maybe not. At one of the summits, we had one lawyer come up and say uh, on the stage, "I don't give a shit about video games. Like I don't care about movies. I don't care about games." 
I'm in this business for a long time. I do great deals and I don't really care about the medium. I never played a video game in my life. And and I think like 60% in the audience, they're like, uh, okay. <laughs> bold. That's, that's a bold. Uh, yeah, pitch. yeah, yeah. That was like <laughs> a contrast because everyone else was saying, oh, I love video games. I love this. I love that. I love that. And, and uh, you know, some firm. You're right. There's, there's a distinction. And what I'm talking about is people who actually go home and play in the evenings. And what you're talking about is people who, you know, have some kind of uh, feeling for the industry or, you know, but you believe in it as a thing. And I think that is a lot more important. I think people, um, and I, I think I really, to be honest, didn't appreciate how technical making a video game is from a legal perspective. Because when you play a video game, you look at the art and you enjoy the shooting or whatever. And um, as a lawyer, it's technical because behind all of that sits rights in art and your motion capture actors and your voiceover people and the music and have you used open source things in your code and the sort of difficulties and nuances of the code itself and it's it's, it's a super intricate and very technical but in the end for a lawyer and um I think people to sort of dismiss it is is to not understand really what it's all about. It's a very interesting area of law. We had we had a one discussion. So going back to Costa to your practice, we had a a discussion with one law firm that's uh, that's got a great reputation, very small law firm, and uh, I think owned by a couple of partners. And basically, you go there if you want to work with them. Uh, they work in a difficult region that tends to have problems or unexpected laws being passed and then changed and then whatnot. Right. And, and I remember that one of the key selling points of, of people who recommended them was that, well, you know, go to a, a larger firm and the firm says, well, here's a 20-page memo for uh, your question about loot boxes. And these guys, they basically come back and say, uh, well, we researched the, the, the question and the answer is no, you cannot do it. And they were like, great, our kind of people, because they've done all the job. They, they, they did the deep dive, but yeah, then the yeah. end result is very short. It's like, no, don't do it. And that's it. Is it something how you like feel? Do you feel that uh, your clients can sometimes appreciate the, the brief answer? The fact that you're not digging up a whole ton of research and, you know, impressing them with the deck and everything, but just give them a very straightforward answer? Oh, God. Who is impressed by that stuff? I mean, let, let, let's be straight. Like, you have to do the research sometimes. Sometimes it, it will be a very specific technical point. Uh, and I, I, as well as IP, I do stuff on, on advertising and stuff like product labeling and uh, regulatory issues. And, and some of those are like, you just can't know all of it by heart. You can't. So you, you have to look into it. But at the end of the day, yeah, absolutely. I think if you're going to give an answer, that should come right at the beginning of your email or your notes or whatever it is. It should start with yes, no, or yes, but watch out for that. And then it should follow with, well, if you want the full reasoning, here it is, or, you know, let me know and, and I can provide it. I, I have very, I mean, I can't remember the last time I wrote a 20-page or anything, frankly. So yeah, absolutely. Brevity is, I would say, 90% of the people I work with, they value that a lot more than... Uh, showing that you've you know done a deep dive spend the budget on writing all those pages and they have something to show yeah exactly i mean yeah 
Jess, you must get a lot of this yeah, as well. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I think quite a lot of that is when you're a trainee, someone will say to you, oh, can you go and research this thing? And they want you to do a memo with all the cases in it and it's all very detailed so that they can think about the answer they give to their client. But I think the problem is that then when you become a grown-up lawyer, um, it's very easy to become entrenched in that mindset where you're giving a very detailed answer. And actually the business doesn't just doesn't want that. They don't have the time. They're really not interested in your case of so-and-so versus so-and-so. And um, they they just want to know whether they can do it or not. And if there's a risk, what the risk is, so they can make a judgment on the risk. Yeah. And do you know, you know Eli5 on Reddit, right? Explain like I'm five. This, this subreddit where the Sergey, I'm sure you, you know about it as well. But you go on there and you'll type in something like astrophysics, Eli5, explain like I'm five. And I think being able to explain something very simply and very briefly is a sign that you're very, very comfortable with the subject matter. And I think producing a 20, 30 page memo is just a, a comfort blanket, in my opinion, that, yeah, unless the client has specifically asked for that because, and you know, there are situations where you need that because let's say you're going to an insurer and an insurer needs to have a solid opinion written on, on you know, very thick paper and signed in lovely ink. Um, but that's quite rare. Most of the time it's it's superfluous. And I think it, it, it shows that somebody's not quite comfortable with the topic basically you want to trust someone to do the research for you and to uh, give consideration to everything they find and then to distill this for you into something that you can use and that's the job of a lawyer and yeah. if you guys are in the law school you're being taught maybe to uh, be more detailed and put everything together and make sure that you didn't forget about this and that but as you transition to the uh, uh, proper job uh, people will want more substance and less less uh, wording on that. Uh, one of the last questions I've got for you is whether or not you think the British lawyers uh, at law firms or in general are being conservative because the litigation is handled by one part of the profession and the rest by the other, as opposed to, let's say, an American lawyer that says, oh, well, let's take them to court and then they just run into the courtroom and do this. Uh, or let's say Germans who are very technical, so they know they can sue, they know how much it'll cost. Uh, it's cheap and it's pretty quick. So, you know, they just say, yeah, sure, let's sue. And then they go and sue and then, you know, things happen. So so in the UK, going to court uh, or suing someone or like performing what Ubisoft did where they sued Apple and Google, the platforms, is this something a UK lawyer can do or you need to be French or American? Absolutely. I mean... Um... Look, the, the, we're going to talk in a lot of generalizations here, but let's just assume they're all true for a second. I, I think it's probably fair to say that there is less gung-ho litigation issuing in the UK, but there's a few quite specific reasons for that. So firstly, uh, our CPR, which is the civil procedure rules which govern all of civil litigation, are they place a lot of emphasis on proportionality, avoiding spending costs if it, unless it's absolutely necessary and avoiding going to court unless you absolutely have to and the whole set of rules throughout is just is geared towards that so there's a strong incentives for you to use adr alternative dispute resolution like mediation or arbitration for example and really only go to court as a, as a last resort all of this is backed by the costs regime which in the uk unlike a lot of other countries generally speaking the loser of a claim will pay not all but a, a, a significant chunk 
of the winner's costs. So what that means is that commercial implication of launching into litigation, which may not go your way, are higher. So when you, as a good lawyer, who has a duty to explain the risks to your client, explain this, you can see why a lot of businesses, unless they have a claim that's extremely valuable, might decide that it's not worth it. What I, what I would say is there's uh, well two things. Firstly, a lot of, at least litigation that I've dealt with, it's very rare that it's just one country involved, especially if you're, when you're dealing with a game. And when you're talking about an international litigation strategy, the UK can be one component of that, and it can be quite a useful component, because by the same token, if somebody has sued you in the UK, you probably think that they mean it, like they're serious about this, they've done their homework, they've looked at it, and despite the kind of strong suggestions that they shouldn't go to court, they've decided that it's worth their while to go there. And I'll go back to the case I mentioned uh, that I was dealing with last year where there was parallel US proceedings. It, it, it all becomes one sort of jigsaw puzzle or one game of chess, if you like, where, you know, issuing in the UK is one particular strategy that you might employ as part of your goal of getting an overall good commercial outcome. And that's the goal. You know, the goal is not to issue proceedings and win at trial. It's not to win a trial. The goal is to get the best possible commercial, which usually means financial, outcome. And and so, yeah, there is a lot of strategy where, you know, you, you might threaten to issue proceedings but not quite go through with it, but you, you've always got that in mind. And just the last, I'll shut up in a second, but just the last point I wanted to mention is that in the UK, certainly over the last 10, 15 years or so, there's been a lot of initiatives to try and introduce more streamlined ways of litigating. So I mentioned the IPEC, the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court earlier. So this has like a, a significantly simplified procedure. There's like strict limits on how much evidence you can put in. There's, there's a limit on how much costs recovery one party can get from the other. And there's a limit of £500,000 on uh, the maximum amount of damages that you can recover. So this is really for the kind of smallish to mid to sort of lower end medium sized cases uh, and there's also more recently a thing called the shorter trial scheme which is effectively you're, you're litigating in the normal court the, the high court where most actions would be brought but it's sort of a halfway house between full full fat proceedings and the diet proceedings of ipec so you've got some streamlining and and some restrictions but you're not restricted on uh, how much money you can recover and and the cost recovery so you know, the, there are there are new things available that that do make it. I was more thinking about the the situation like Bethesda suing uh, the Oculus guys and winning hundreds of mm. millions, and it was like very dramatic. You know, they've won this much, and then oh, it was halved by the court, but it's still hundreds of millions of uh, uh, dollars. So would this have happened in the UK or? If that would be both British companies, then they would just sort of talk and negotiate and then finally maybe settle without exposing themselves to this drama of court and the chance of court. Or or you feel that if that would be happening in the UK, then it'll be the same thing. And, uh, you know, just that if you feel strongly, you just go ahead. Even though the lawyers in the UK, they wouldn't necessarily be trial lawyers. So probably... Uh, you know, people say, oh, well, we don't know, but my colleague will go to court, so let's get him on board. And then the colleague comes in and then you all discuss this and then everyone tries not to go to court. 
Yeah, I mean, so you're, you're talking about barristers and, and solicitors. I think yep. that's the distinction uh, you're making. So, uh, what I would say is, solicitor. There are litigator solicitors. So I'm I'm an example of that. So I'm not a barrister, but I do litigation work. And when, if and when something ends up going to trial, I'm there, sitting next to the barrister. You know, feeding information and instructions to the barrister as to what arguments we want uh, her or him to make. So it, uh, I would think of it more as a as a team, as w where each individual person has particular specialisms. So if I can do some broad brush generalizations, I would say you know the barrister skill set is strong oratory skills, knowledge uh, of particular judges and their attitude to uh, you know particular issues. And a very strong knowledge of like the real black letter case law, uh, and what a solicitor's like litigation solicitor's strengths are really kind of seeing the big picture strategy and, and driving that, including international components, as well as you know negotiation skills and and you know ultimately trying to to reach a deal. Because the the truth is, I think this is true in in a lot of countries, not just the UK. Most disputes don't go to trial. The vast majority do not go to trial. They are settled at some stage. Could be right on the doorstep of trial. Could be sooner than that. And that's really where a solicitor's skill set is is more valuable. And the way it works is in the UK. Yes, you would bring in a barrister if it looks like you're close to issuing proceedings or about to. But you you do that because they are are the ones who would ultimately be presenting the arguments in front of the judge. And so there's value in having them help with drafting the pleadings uh, at an early stage, because obviously they're going to have to rely on this. So a quick question for Jessica then. Would you would you say that your uh, American-based, Seattle-based colleagues are uh, more adventurous in the sense of, you know, let's try this and if we fail, then you know, we go and then and work on this? Or would you say that there's not really uh, any difference? I can't really speak for them. I don't particularly so far have much experience of the way their litigation teams work. But um, I know that, you know, they'll always start with what my, my ninja colleagues like to call a strong legal letter. Um, uh, you you just got to try and, and negotiate these things out before you start spending money on litigation. I think it doesn't really matter which jurisdiction you're in. Everyone is worried about cost. And certainly, certainly depending where you are in the US, amount that you can get out of trial is lots more than you would get in the UK. I think that affects people's decisions to litigate or not. Certainly in the UK, we're very uh, interested in the cost of lit litigation, but also the time it takes. Of course, if you litigate in the UK, it's, it's a matter of public record as well. Whereas if you partly go to mediation and you keep all that information behind, that's important mm. to people too. Um, you know, if you have if you have something that's a major issue and there's a lot of money at stake, then I think that will that will override the the cost and the time issue of litigation. I, I think that's part of the reason that pharmaceuticals companies they they litigate hard because there is a lot of money at stake that trade-off is not quite so great in in the games industry that's 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 uh sounds very familiar because when we talk to people who work in pharma 
then they look at the games industry and they're like, oh, guys, you're just like a kindergarten industry because you, you're not really having any oh. conflicts, any dramas, any, you know, in the pharma industry, they're in and out of depositions all the time, going for weeks at a time, here, there, there, everywhere. And then when they look at the games industry, everyone <laughs> seems to be friends or uh, very few people actually go and have this. That's good, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, from them. some perspective, it's great. <laughs> like for us, uh, from the outside, maybe not so great if you uh, yeah, dream of uh, having this uh, sort of uh, a drama serious like career. So, mm. so my, my, my last question for today for both of you guys is, would you cost a change to an in-house position? And and if yes, then what would be the change? And if no, then why? Like you've grown in a law firm and you've got your experience. Is there any appeal for you to, after a few years, going and becoming in-house for some studio or it's too boring for you? No, it's definitely not boring. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't consider it at various stages. Uh, I mean, look, I think I've, I've committed myself down the path I'm on at the moment and I'm just really happy with what I'm doing and where I'm at right now. So I guess one of the reasons why I'm not looking at that at the moment is because I already get to work every day with really cool people in-house, like on a, a constantly on the phone, on emails, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I know it's not the same thing as actually being there and dealing with everyday issues, but I don't feel like I'm massively missing out on industry immersion where I'm at and with what I'm doing right now. So. I, in that sense, I feel like I've got the, the best of, of both worlds. The only thing that would really make me consider it is the fact that I don't have to record my time. <laughs> sure. Okay. So for you, basically, as long as the firm is engaged in the area that you love and you've got a bunch of experience coming through and you work with nice people, uh, that makes you happy. And if you would transition to, I don't know, a larger firm with a lot of pressure, and you'll be sent to different areas, then you would miss the uh, uh, the ability of going and getting your hands dirty in the games industry. And for you, Jessica, would you change to a law firm where you know everything happens right now when there's a client uh, screaming on the phone because they are just getting served with some notices and you need to go and save this studio and that studio and there's a, I don't know, a proceeding against that studio? Uh, no, I think that's really not for me anymore. Um... I don't think it ever really was for me. Um, it's very nice working in-house. I like, like, well, not time recording, that is amazing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but I like to be involved with people that I'm advising, helping. It's really nice because I used to find that when I was in private practice, you, if somebody walks through your door, you help them for a bit, you give them advice, pay your bill and that's it for a while. Whereas things that I advise on in-house, I sort of see them all the way through pretty much. And it's really nice to be involved in that rather than just a sort of peripheral um, part of it. Um, I, and I think that's, and the and the variety of work I get is, is probably the, the key things for me. Because in any given week, I'm looking at things from licenses to employment issues, property, construction, um, we did the acquisition with Microsoft, uh, there are IP issues, I've got supplier and commercial contracts. It's just a whole range of completely random things come across my desk and it really keeps things uh, busy, but also interesting. Um, and I think I would trade that for in-house, uh, for private practice. I, I guess the secret for your happiness is that the studio is 
uh, large enough and successful and ambitious that they do challenging things and they do different things and that throws you into different uh, fields of expertise as well as internationally as opposed to let's say a smaller studio that would just be doing mobile games and uh, probably your only concern would be a cloning <laughs> i don't know maybe some some <laughs> partner disagreements but that's about it cool so so you guys seem happy where you are and uh really uh happy for you and uh for your career paths and hopefully uh some years down the line you're uh growing stronger roots and uh you know there's there's a lot of talk about people changing jobs and whether or not uh you should work for 10 years and then change the job or you should change jobs every three years and uh at least in the mm. summit community there's this big split that uh, we've been making that in dbook this year uh hopefully you guys will see mm -hmm. it at some point and it's been amazing that sometimes you say uh list your last three jobs and uh someone sends you and it's like uh, for the last 22 years, I've been a partner at this firm. You're like, okay. And then someone is like, well, I'm in this game studio for what is now 10 years. Yeah, yeah, they got founded uh, 11 years ago and I'm giving them 10 years. And it's like, yeah. okay, these people are fully committed. You know that they're not thinking about the next six months. They're thinking about the next five years or six years. And then you get people who uh, say, oh, yeah, sure. Here's my three last jobs. And then uh, maybe you can put squeeze in two more. It's like, okay, sure. Um, yeah. So that's a different approach, and I think like you guys both are, uh, are growing your own networks and your own expertise and uh, uh, your own reputation, where uh, to the point where people work with you because they like you and they like uh, your professional advice. And I think the most important thing. Yeah, and there's different ways of reaching it, but you know, all, all valid. You really want it. Eventually, you'll get it. I'm starting to believe that more and more now. Uh, thanks a bunch for your time, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we meet again when it's uh, safe to travel. And uh, we've got already flights from London. But thank uh, you, Sergey, and yeah, look forward to seeing you in November. Hopefully, hopefully we're all in good shape. Yes, and if not, then we yeah. we'll we'll reschedule. But uh, so far, so good. Uh, and uh, thanks much, Jessica. It was a pleasure to meet you and uh, to. Uh, find this kind of a comfortable spot of where an in-house lawyer is happy and uh, productive and creative and is interconnected to everything within this big family, but you've got your own studio to run. Uh, I think that's an amazing career for some law students. Uh, and if you guys are listening, this could be your sort of, you know, down the line, your career that you, you get drafted into a studio like this and you help that studio stay strong and be ambitious and you sort of watch them grow and you take pleasure in this. Yes, definitely. Hopefully November. Fingers crossed. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cool. See you later, guys. Cheers. Bye.